Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Well, give me a second too to just kind of take this in. It's been a long time since I was up here. Um, I have been, for some of you guys who don't know, my name is Brandon Hirth, uh, the associate pastor here, and my wife and I have been in China for the last nine months. So we weren't around Crossroads too much. If you are new here, I uh, haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. And so uh, if you could do me a favor, if you're new here, or even if you've been coming for 10 years and we haven't met yet, uh, I would love to meet you. Uh, one of the things about being at a big church that kind of stinks is just being in a room like this and not knowing everybody. And so come up after the service, shake my hand, tell me a little bit of your story, tell me your name. I would love to get to know you, make this place, this place feel a little bit smaller. Uh, second favor for you guys, I've been in China, like I said, for a year. The only public speaking that I have done in a year is in the ESL classroom, English as a Second Language. And when you're in that classroom, you talk very, very slowly. And so if I start to over-enunciate, I start to slow down, just kind of lock eyes with me, give me the speed up signal, all right? That will help me a ton. Also, that's if I talk slowly. Don't give me the, man, I'm hungry. Just <laughs> let's get this thing going. But 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, a little bit of where we've been. If you guys are new, we've been traveling through the life of David. And we've really seen him go from a small shepherd boy that's forgotten to a man. And now as of last week, he's finally king. He's been waiting for years, but we see the stability now of God's man, a man after God's own heart, is now king. And we see the whole nation, Israel and Judah, brought together in their stability. And now in our passage, we see David wanting to bring that same stability to the ark of the Lord. And when I say ark, don't think large wooden boat. I want you to think small wooden box. Okay, it's about four feet long by about two feet and a couple inches wide. And this box was no mere box, though. This box represented the very presence of God. And David wants to bring it to Jerusalem, give it a permanent home with him in the capital city. So if you're able, if you're willing, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. Second Samuel chapter 6, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's a little long, fair warning. It's part of my new preaching strategy. You pick a large passage and your sermon can be that much shorter. <laughs> David Again, brought together all the able men, young men of Israel, 30,000. And he and all of his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, with harps, with lyres, with timbrels, with sistrums and cymbals. I don't even know what half of these instruments are, but I think it'd be great to see Jesse Weatherby on the sistrum, Will Weatherhead on the harp next week. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? 
He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he dropped it off at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I can only imagine how stoked this guy was to get this thing at that point. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him as an entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of the Lord. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. I'm sure he did. Now, to the city of David with rejoicing, he brought it. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. Seems like odd party food, but raisins were reserved for only the biggest of celebrations back then. Which is why if you come to a party at the Hearth household, sun maids for everyone. <laughs> when David returned home, just trying to keep it light, guys. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to her, it's before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house. Ouch. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I'm willing to be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Quite the passage, huh? Not just in length, but in content as well. On the surface, this is a really challenging part of Scripture. I mean, David and Uzzah seem to be doing everything right. They have pure motives, it seems. And yet Uzzah winds up dead. David leaves the scene terrified. And he runs home defeated. In fact, tons of people have read this passage more than maybe any other. And they've walked away saying, I can't worship the God of the Bible. I spent some time on atheist forums, always kind of a scary thing to do, but this passage came up over and over and over again. I know people who have struggled personally with this, and it has caused them to run away from the Lord. Well, today we're not going to run away. Today we're going to run directly to the challenging parts of this passage. I want us to look at them. I want us to examine them. But as we do... I think it's really a shame that sometimes when we are studying Scripture, we we know the answer at the end. We know how the story turns out. We know the answer in the back of the book, and we lose sight of the fact that these are real people experiencing real emotions, and they don't know how this story is going to turn out. For them, they're just living in it, and they don't know the ending. It's kind of like for me, when I married my wife... After a couple of years, she came to me and she said, I didn't even realize it, but I married two men when I married you. I married the Brandon in every situation, and then Brandon when he watches college football. (laughs) 
because somehow I just changed completely, and she swears I'm a different person. And I started to pay attention to my behavior, and she's kind of right. As the game goes on, inevitably, I start inching closer and closer to the edge of the couch, and I'm just leaning on it, and my leg starts to shake at like superhuman speeds, and I start yelling at the TV, and I get really sad even for hours after the game if it doesn't go well. In fact, sometimes I can't, this is embarrassing, but I can't even eat during the game because I'm just like so tense during it. And I'm an Oklahoma fan, and that's bad news to live in Michigan, not because of the Wolverines or the Spartans, but because... Michigan doesn't televise Oklahoma Sooner games. So inevitably, I have to wait a day or two for this game to come out online, and I have to spend like two days kind of covering my ears because I don't want to hear the score. Because if I know the score, if I know how the game ends, it changes how I watch it. No longer am I on the edge of my seat. I kind of want to just race through it, the bad parts, because I know how it's going to turn out. And in this story, I want us to look at it through the lens of not knowing what's going to happen in the end of it. Not knowing even what's going to happen in the end of our Bibles like some of us know. What was it like for David to experience this? David was a new king. He was fresh on the scene. Just got there. It had been years and years of buildup, and he wants to do everything right. David's a good king. He's a wise king. He wants to even learn from the mistakes of the man who went before him. So turn with me to 1 Chronicles 13. Keep a finger in Samuel, put a finger in Chronicles, because we're going to kind of flip back and forth a little bit. Sometimes when you're reading a story, you just think, man, I wish I had more detail here. And then sometimes you're lucky, and God gives you a second telling of the same story. And it has a little extra details in it. So 1 Chronicles 13, starting in verse 3. David speaking, he says, Let us bring the ark of God back for us, speaking to the leaders of Israel. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. It's a really sad testimony to Saul's kingship. The whole assembly, all the leaders agreed to it because it seemed right in the eyes of the people. Here's David, not only learning from Saul's mistakes, but did you catch what verse 4 said? Everybody thinks this is a great idea. This is right. And you know what? They're correct. It's a wonderful idea. In fact, it's even a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 12 that talks about when the ark is going to be brought to the place that God has for it. That's Jerusalem. That's Zion. This is a good idea. And so David has the support of all of his leaders. He's pumped. He's excited. And what does he do? Verse 5. He assembles all of Israel. He sends out the word, go near, go far, go east, go west, go north, go south. I want you to tell everybody, we're having a party. There's going to be music. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be raisins. It's going to be epic. (laughs) And why is David throwing this party? I can just hear people asking, is it his birthday? Is it because he's king? Did he have a son? Why this party? But David throws this party because of the ark of the Lord. That's the kind of king that he is. He's excited about the very presence of God, this box that represents it. And so David, he doesn't just invite the citizens. Flip back to our passage, 2 Samuel. He doesn't just invite the citizens, he brings the army. 2 Samuel, verse 1, it says that David brings together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. This is crazy. 
Guys, this is insane. We don't really capture this, but this would be like as if I called up 30,000 Marines. I said, guys, I need your help. Come with me. 30,000 Marines. And then I got all the citizens in the state of Michigan. I said, come on out. We're having a party. And we're going to walk from here to Granville to get this dresser that I got on Craigslist and bring it back. (laughs) That's how far the distance is. And that's the size of this box that they're bringing back. And I think that it shows us just the excitement that David had. Look at verse 5. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. This is the importance that David placed on this ark. This is the importance of God's presence to this nation. And I imagine it being such a fun celebration. People laughing, people worshiping, people lining the streets and cheering as the ark went past them. And as I thought about that, it just made me wonder this week, when's the last time I got that excited about the presence of God? When's the last time that I was so excited, I had so much enjoyment of God that I just wanted to call all my friends and just say, you got to experience this too. When's the last time I showed that kind of delight where I just celebrated before the Lord with everything that I had? And obviously, verse 7, we know this whole party is going to go south. Even the biggest and best parties, the biggest ragers, tend to fizzle out when someone drops dead in the middle of it. And so, David watches a man who had lived safely with the ark in his own home for 20 years get struck down. And I was talking to my wife about this. She's like, he had the ark in his house for 20 years? Abinadab, his father, had it at his house. He grew up with this thing. And my wife was like, if he had like kryptonite in his house, you'd think he would learn how to handle it. We'll get to that, I promise. But right now, I just want us to look at the reaction of David. Verse 8, David is ticked. Verse 8 tells us he's indignant. He is angry because the Lord's wrath has broken out upon Uzzah. And by verse 9, we see that anger has shifted to fear. David's afraid. David, the only man who stood up to Goliath, the fearless king, publicly gives in to his fear. All of Israel's there. His whole army is watching, and he just kind of dumps off the ark, and he returns home with slumped shoulders, having failed to bring the ark back. And sometimes when you're reading Scripture, There's like a little nugget that the more you study it, the more you kind of see something. It doesn't change the meaning, but it just kind of enriches it. And so as I was looking, I started thinking, Obed-Edom is a what? Not a trick question. Verse 10. Gittite. Thank you. Yes. Right there. Obed-Edom is a Gittite. Does anyone know, this is a little bit harder, what city the Gittites are from? Gath. Anyone know who comes from Gath? Goliath. I'm hearing it all over. Obed-Edom grew up in the hometown of Goliath, the giant that David fought. And I feel like Scripture just puts that in there for us to see the contrast. Here's David, who's one of the most fearless men in all of Scripture. The man who, when he wants to marry a girl, The dowry set at a hundred Philistines and he just goes and he fights a hundred men like it's nothing. 
The man who they sing about and they say, David has slayed his tens of thousands. The man who when a lion or bear would attack the sheep, he wasn't afraid. The man that when all of Israel was on a hill, all of the army, quaking in fear as Goliath was down there in the valley with a spear like a weaver's rod and everyone's afraid, this little shepherd boy was the only one who just stepped down off that hill and just courageously stared down that giant. That's the man that we have here. And yet suddenly David is just dropping off the ark and he's in terror. What chilled this great hero to the bone? I think David realizes he's not dealing with a mere giant here. David knows he's dealing with something so much bigger. He's dealing with Yahweh. And I think we've lost today some of that reverence, some of that holy respect that the God of this universe commands. We read passages about fearing the Lord and we say, no, 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 not my God. My God is love. Yes, the God of the Bible is love, but the God of the Bible is also holy. In fact, there's over 600 passages in the Old Testament alone that speak of God's wrath as a result of his holiness. And I think that we've lost that, and I think there's two big reasons on why we don't really respond to or think about or understand what it is to fear the Lord. Number one is we don't understand our sin. And number two, we don't understand the holiness of God. God is nuclear. He's he's perfect. He's sinless. He's set apart. He's infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. God is an unquenchable fire. He has such a radiance that to even look upon him would mean death for us. In fact, this sun that we've been laying out and enjoying up till today, that from trillions of miles away can still burn your skin because it's that strong and that powerful. Revelation tells us that at the end, we're not going to need the sun anymore. We're going to have one that's brighter than the sun, one that's more powerful than the very sun in the sky. We're going to have God's presence, and he's that radiant. God is big. God is holy. God is massive. One touch of a wooden box that merely represents his presence, and Uzzah is killed on the spot. Scripture is littered with places that talk about the holiness of God. Probably the most known and most uh, beloved passage is Isaiah chapter 6, and it just says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, this is not Uzzah, this is a king, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We don't know much about these angelic beings, these seraphim. It's the only place in Scripture they're 
mentioned, but when we read this, I think art has done a great disservice to us. I think we picture these chubby little angels floating around with harps and maybe a bow and arrow like Cupid. These were huge, massive creatures. At just the sound of their voice, the entire temple mount began to shake. The thresholds of the doors were trembling. Their simple voices created earthquake-like symptoms on, this, on the ground. These beings were huge. We would run in terror from them. And they were sinless beings, and yet as they stand before a holy God, they must cover their faces and cover their feet. Even these beings can't look God in the eye. He is that holy. I think we don't understand the fear of David because we don't understand the holiness of God. Do you understand that holiness? Have you allowed, when's the last time you allowed your mind to just fixate on the glory and the majesty of the God that we serve? The God who clothes himself in unapproachable light. If your picture of God is just some kindly grandfather, you're missing it. Is your picture of God the one that even the the mighty seraphim must cover their eyes, cover their faces, and cover their feet? The God that you can just kind of fit in your pocket and he's safe to carry around. You don't have the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is a huge, mighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God. He's the one that we sing about on Sunday mornings when we sing, the mountains shake before you, the demons run and flee. At just the sound or the mention of your name, King of Majesty. There's no power in hell. There's no one who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I Am. The great I Am, the one who was before us, the one who is without us. The one who's not dependent on anyone. He just is I Am. In fact, even the New Testament, some people like to say it's just the Old Testament God that's depicted that way. New Testament is littered with examples too. Hebrews 10 says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The holiness of God should terrify us like it does David. I think it causes him to lose sleep for a few months. For three months, he's sitting there racking his brain saying, what did I do? What caused this? How can I deal with this small box that has more deadly force than anything I've ever imagined or dealt with up until this point? In fact, I tried to think of the power of the ark, and I think the closest example that I can come up with, I remember reading this in some random Christian book, and I always like to give credit where it's due, so consider yourself cited, random Christian book. But the author said the power of the ark is probably closest captured by considering plutonium, that nuclear material, one of the most powerful substances we have on the earth. It's what they make atomic bombs out of. And so this week, I googled um, how to handle plutonium. I'm pretty sure that I'm on a national watch list. There is no doubt in my mind. I followed it up with how to transport plutonium before really realizing what I had done. (laughs) Um, I'd like to publicly say I do not have it. It wasn't a parting gift from the president of China when I left. (laughs) 
But there's a manual out there. The American Nuclear Association has a manual on how to handle and how to translate plutonium. It's crazy. I know because I'm crazy enough to have read it. One of the things with this is that the case that you transport plutonium in, the box, has to go through all kinds of testing. In fact, they like to make sure that it is very stable. They, they want to simulate dropping it from 2,000 feet from an aircraft. And it needs to still have zero damage, zero defects. Then, as if that's not enough, they think, well, maybe it's uneven ground. And so they build this huge spike, and they give it a puncture test. And they drop it on its top, on its side, on its corner, see if it punctures at all. And then if it passes all of that, they put it in a fire, fully engulfed in a fire of at least 1,480 degrees for 30 minutes. No damage. Then they drop it to the ocean or a lake, and it needs to be able to survive eight hours fully immersed in water without even a tiny leak. That's how indestructible this box needs to be. Not because they plan to do any of these things, but because they need to protect the people who are transporting it. They need to protect us as we don't even know and it drives by on the highway. There is a huge, thick manual on how to handle and how to transport a dangerous substance like plutonium. And here we have David, who's got something even more powerful than plutonium. If only he had a manual on how to transport it. Well, the good news is he does. The bad news is David didn't even consult it. And I know David knew about it because Deuteronomy 17, 18 tells us this. When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself a copy of this law, the Torah. He's supposed to write a copy of God's law so that he knows it, that he not only has read it, but that he's meditated on it, that he's even handwritten a personal copy of this law. And in that law, God lays out exactly how the ark is to be transported. Numbers 4. Number seven, Exodus 25, it's mentioned in a lot of spots. And I know that David realizes after three months that he's made this mistake because 1 Chronicles 15, flip over there to that again, lets us know a little bit of David's thinking. It reads, David summoned the priests and he said to them, this is verse 12, by the way, you are the heads of the Levitical families, the priests. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourself, wash yourself, purify yourself, cleanse yourself, to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it and wait for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him how to do it in the prescribed way. See, the ark had rings on the side. It was a big box, but it had rings on the side so that poles could be inserted through it and it could be carried on the shoulder of the Levites, not just any Levites though, the Kohathites, a specific family that had been given the task and the purpose and the mission to transport the ark. And the reason was it wasn't going to fall at that point either. There was no worry. It was steady. But David doesn't do any of this. David just sticks it on a new ox cart and sends it off. Ox carts were for luggage in that day. They weren't for the ark. This would be Imagine the President of the United States came in, and we all, Mr. President, you know, we went through our pleasantries, shook his hand, and he said, I want to come to your house for lunch today. And you said, great. He said, can I ride with you? Wonderful. So after the service, he comes around, and he goes to get in the passenger seat of your car, and you go, oh, no, 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 Mr. President, you're in the back. 
And so he's like, this is weird, but he goes around to the back seat, and you're like, no, 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 you're in the back, you're in the trunk. <laughs> That's where the luggage goes. That's not where the most valued thing, the most respected and revered thing goes. And yet David just slaps it on this ox car, and you might be thinking, man, this seems really small. I mean, isn't this even numbers? Exodus 25, isn't this kind of like the parts of the Bible we tend to skip past? It's not really that important, is it? It is a huge deal, but it gets far worse. Where did David get the idea of the ox cart? That's where it gets a little worse in my mind. If it wasn't from Scripture, where did he come up with this idea of a new ox cart? He gets it from the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. You see, a few chapters back, actually quite a few chapters back, you can read it in 1 Samuel 6 if you want, the Israels have... the. Philistines have captured the ark. They've taken control of it. And it's this amazing story where they bring it from city to city, and every time it shows up in a city, the people get plagues and curses on them, and so they move it to the next city. And then, like, their god starts to fall over at night and even has parts broken off of them. And so the Philistines realize, wow, this thing has immense power. The God of Israel is real. And they say, we can't have this in our land. And so what do they do? They get a new ox cart. They put the ark on it. And they throw a bunch of gold as a guilt offering. And then they kind of slap the butt of the ox and they say, if this thing goes to Israel, we know that the Lord is behind it. If it goes anywhere else, then it's just coincidence and we'll go get it. And that ox cart just makes a beeline straight to Israel, straight to Abinadab's house, and it sits there for 20 years. So when David goes to move it from Abinadab's house, he learns from the Philistines how he thinks he should move it. And before we're too harsh on him for not consulting the word and doing that, I wonder how often do we do the exact same thing? We have a big decision, but we never consult God's word on it. We talk to our friends, we talk to our teachers, and I'm not anti-counsel, but we never go to the great counselor. Or we take the cultural ethos of our day, we take what the world is saying, and we begin to make it our own, and we say things like, well, yeah, maybe it's wrong, but I know God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy, so I'm sure it's fine. I'm going to do it. God wants you to be holy far more than he wants you to be happy. God cares more about your obedience than he cares about your comfort. We begin to commit the sin of David when we look to the world rather than, we look, than looking to the word. I think too many of us, too many times in my own life, I've just ignored the word and some of these parts that seem insignificant that David glossed over. But sadly, this passage shows us the immense consequences for David's mistakes. Uzzah dies because of this. Uzzah loses his life. I want to talk about Uzzah here just a little bit because I think it's easy to maybe make him an innocent victim and David's the one to blame. Uzzah's no saint here either and I think we can learn a lot from him. You see, Uzzah saw the crowds. He saw the huge party. He knew how important this ark was. He had had it in his house for 20 years. He knew he wasn't supposed to touch it. But as that ark starts to totter and shift, actually, the Bible doesn't say that the ark even did. As the ox stumbles a little bit, Uzzah makes a huge mistake. A huge mistake. And R.C. Sproul and a bunch of other pastors have pointed this mistake out. He says, Uzzah's mistake was thinking that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. 
Let me say that again. Uzzah's mistake was thinking that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. See, Uzzah wants to save God from the disgrace of the ark falling to the ground, but what he doesn't realize is that his own hand is far more disgraceful. Uzzah shows absolutely no recognition for his sin. He might not think he's perfect, but he doesn't think he's that bad either. He assumes that to touch the dirt would defile God, but the truth of the matter is it's not creation that's unclean. It's us that make creation unclean. Guys, how seriously do we take our sin? Are we like Uzzah? We don't really see ourselves that bad. We don't really think it's that big of a deal that we have a little sin in our lives. We still consider ourselves mostly clean. We look in the mirror and think, that's somebody God could love. If we can't see the depths of our sin, we're never going to see the great depths of our need for a Savior. Guys, holiness and sin don't mix. And for a long time, I thought holiness and sin were kind of like oil and water or like magnets that repel each other. But I owe a little debt to Tim Keller. He helped me to understand it a little bit more real. And he says that holiness and sin is more like fire and water. If you take a candle and you dip it into water, that water is going to consume that fire, right? One is always going to consume the other. But if you take that same water and you throw it on a raging forest fire, that water is just going to be vaporized, pulverized by the fire. Holiness and sin cannot meet. One will always consume the other. And when we look at our God, who is an unquenchable fire, who is pure and perfect holiness, and we look at our own sin, it's like throwing a water balloon into the sun. If we were to touch, we would just be vaporized. The walls of the ark weren't meant to keep God in. They were meant to keep us out. So I ask you again, how seriously do you take your sin? Are you an Uzzah? It often sounds like this. It's just a little. Well, I'm better than that person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Other people are doing it. I could stop if I wanted to. Or this one. Well, God knows my heart. This passage is terrifying because Uzzah reminds us that disobedience, even if we have right motives, still can't stand before a holy God. Our sin is bigger than even our good motives. Crossroads, are we a church that is brutal with sin, that takes it seriously? that sees that holiness and sin can't mix, that one's going to consume the other? Or do we listen to the whispers of sin in our ear that just kind of says, it's not that big a deal. You're still mostly clean. This passage highlights two things, the extreme holiness of God and the extreme sinfulness of man. Some of you out there might be finding this to be a hard passage. I mentioned this is a difficult one for a lot of people And this sermon probably isn't helping with talking all about holiness and wrath. Might be a little uncomfortable. This might be a passage that pushes you away from God. But before we go there, I want to ask a couple things. 
One is just, I want to state, we live in a, in a world, in a society that's taken this new thing, and I, I don't know where it came from, but we somehow think that we have a right to define who God is. That we can pick and choose how God is and choose what we want. I went to a Unitarian church rummage sale a few years ago, and mostly it was just junk in there, but I found the most hideous leopard print robe, and it was so ugly that I just had to have it, and so I bought it. I don't know why, and I don't even know why I'm telling you that part of the story. But at this Unitarian church, I walked by this bulletin board, and they were advertising upcoming events, and one of the upcoming events was a create-your-own-theology class. Theology being the study of God. In other words, create your own vision of God, where you walk in and you take a little of this from Islam and Oh, I'll take a little of this from Judaism and this from Christianity, this from Buddhism, this just because I thought of it and I like it. And when I think about that, I'm pretty confident that of that buffet line of choices for God, that God's holiness and God's wrath were probably left on the shelf by most people. And there's a real shame in that, and we miss something huge when we do that. And so I want you to ask you just to bear with me just a little bit here. Bear with me, and I want to ask you one more favor too. If you're one of the people that just struggle with this passage and accepting a holy God that's serious about sin, I want to ask you too to judge God based on his character and not just his characteristic. I'll say that again. Judge not on his characteristics about God, but judge him on his character. And I think that we all kind of instinctively get this, especially as Americans. There's a real thing today that's a very good thing that says don't judge a person based on their characteristics, whether they're tall or thin, short or heavy or white or black or old or young. Don't judge them based on that. Judge them based on their character. And God has a characteristic that he is holy, absolutely. But in the same way that we don't hold it against fire when it burns us or plutonium that it's so destructive, God has a holiness, a characteristic. But I want to ask you, look at his character before you make your decision. And so far, this story has been pretty sad, I admit it. Uzzah's dead. David has gone home angry and afraid. But here's what I love about our God. The story doesn't end here. In fact, this story ends with another party. David is rejoicing again before the Lord. This holy God that is utterly unapproachable has come to dwell with his people. This is the God that we serve, a God who wants to dwell with us. See, this is where I want to camp for the remainder of our time. This passage turns a lot of people off to the Bible, but I think if we really understand it, it should drive us towards the God of the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't water down God's holiness. It doesn't try to make him safe. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it best when someone says, is he safe? And he says, no, but he's good. God doesn't sacrifice his holiness. He's better than safe. He makes a way where there seems to be no way. In his love and in his grace, he finds an answer to the question David asks in verse 9. How in the world can a holy God come dwell with an unholy people? And we find the answer, and the answer isn't that he becomes safe. The answer isn't that our good deeds make it okay for him to dwell with us. In fact, the answer isn't even learning how to carry the ark. The answer we find is the answer in the back of our books in Hebrews 10. 
And Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we can have confidence to enter the holy place of God. We can have confidence to enter the holy of holies, to approach the ark, to approach God's presence. Not entitlement, but confidence. And how? By the blood of Jesus. See, David isn't the ultimate king. And the ark isn't the ultimate symbol of God's presence. No. A thousand years after this, we're going to see God's presence enter Jerusalem again. But this time, instead of riding on an ox cart, he's going to ride on a donkey. And instead of bringing death, he's coming to die. God made a way where there was no way. God doesn't sacrifice his holiness. He sacrifices himself. He pours out all that wrath on himself rather than us. Jesus is the way, the answer to the question, how does a holy God dwell with an unholy people? God dies to make it happen. Let's pray. God, your word, and Jeremiah even talks about a time when there will be no more ark, it will be lost God, looking around this room, I can't help but think about the fact that your presence is here, that we are the temple. Your presence is in each one of us, that you made a way to dwell with sinful people for all eternity. God, I pray if there are people in this room who don't know that way, that they would look to Jesus today. And God, for each one of us in this room that know him, I pray, asking, knowing that David danced with joy at the mere ark entering the city, how much more so should we dance and celebrate you that you have come to live within us? God, who are you that you are mindful of sinful man? We just praise you. We just look to you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' precious and holy and mighty name, amen.